I got an email last winter, and the email in the very first sentence was claiming to offer me an amazing opportunity. And I've been playing music for so long that anytime I hear those two words together, I immediately will delete the email and I'll stop listening. But for some reason I kept reading on and it turned out to be a pretty great opportunity. It was the folks at Pandora were creating, we'll say a history of country music type show and they wanted me to be the host of it. I've kept this quiet for quite a long time. We've been recording and working hard on it and it's been a lot of fun doing it. But the thing's finally live and it's been a blast to be part of. I'm really happy with the people I'm working with. There's a whole lot of folks involved who are working very hard and are very smart, dedicated people. I just happen to be the pretty face that gets to host the show. But it's called Country Built. You can find it at pandora.com slash countrybuilt. And I believe that this grew out of this show, this thing that I've been doing in hotel rooms, in airports, you know, out in my living room, just wherever I can for the last couple years. Somehow this thing has spread enough to where the folks at Pandora knew about it. And it has everything to do with you guys telling your friends and turning other people on. And I, I truly, truly appreciate it. It's very nice to be able to get to be part of this program. And I have a lot of you folks to thank for that. So if you want to go check it out, I think you would really enjoy it. The show goes like this. They'll play a couple classic country songs. I'll cut in and I'll tell a story about Hank Williams. Then they'll play a couple more songs. And then I'll cut in and I'll tell a story about Kitty Wells. So far, people have really been enjoying it. So I urge you to go check it out. Just go to pandora.com slash countrybuilt. I'm Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ben Schaefer. Ben is an editor at DeCapo Press. You can find out all you need to know about Ben at decapopress.com. Ben's an old friend of mine from Indianapolis. I met him through his brother, Matt, who's an old dear friend of mine. Matt and I worked the door together at a bar called The Patio in Indianapolis in the early to mid-90s. And we used to sit there and just dream about what we might do one day. And meanwhile, while we were dreaming about what we might do, Ben had moved to New York and was working for Allen Ginsberg and was having a pretty great life. You know, we were having a good life back in Indianapolis, but it wasn't hanging out with Allen Ginsberg-type good life. I met up with Ben at a hotel in Indianapolis, and we had a really good time. It was beautiful to get to see and chat with Ben and Matt again, and I hope we don't wait so long next time. 
Here's Ben Schaefer. I believe it was 1988 or seven. I was a sophomore in high school. There was a group of uh, uh, concerned parents who wanted to take Allen Ginsberg's collected poems, 1947 to 1980, out of the school library. A kid had checked it out, took the book home. I was laying around the house, and his mother picked up the book and opened it. And I believe it was to the poem uh, called Please Master, a very graphic sex poem, which a high school teacher just got uh, fired from actually a few months ago for reading it to his uh, English class, if you look that up online. I think he was crazy to do that. It's a pretty intense poem. Um, homosexual sex, too, which was part of the you know, reaction against it. So um, there was a group called the Concerned Coalition of Minority Parents there at North Central, which was run by Moja Ajabu, who Indianapolis residents might know is um, kind of a local demagogue in a way. Um, work, he ran the Indianapolis Black Panther Coalition, which was eh, black. Maybe they were Black Panthers. He was, he was an interesting guy. But so he spearheaded the ban, um, and um, I interviewed him for the school paper about it, Mr. Ajabu. And his contention was that um, these poems will turn you gay. <laughs> <laughs> he actually said, um, you know, a straight person could read this and then, after reading it, aspire to be a homosexual. Which is funny, because what he's doing is basically admitting that the poem turned him on. <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, anyway, the band didn't actually happen. Um, but um, being a big Bob Dylan nerd, um, still am, and uh, I knew who Ginsburg was because it's a very direct line from, you know, Ginsburg and the Beats to Bob Dylan. And um, So I just, I got a looked up in Who's Who, and remember those Who's Who in America books or whatever, and there's a P.O. box for Alan, and I just sent the interview and, um, and also an editorial I'd written about it. Um, to him, to his P.O. box. And then, you know, I got a letter back later um, saying, you know, send me this guy's address and I'll send him some materials to enlighten his scope. You know, and also thanks for letting me know about this. I have the letter somewhere. And so I guess he wrote a big letter to the guy, you know, and, um, and it, uh, you know, a lot of that got in the newspaper and such. And then maybe a year or two later, he was reading at Butler University. And so um, after the reading, I went up and talked to him. I was like, hey, do you remember? I was a guy, you know, I, yeah, he totally did. You know, he's very concerned with censorship and stuff. And so we talked a lot there and went to the party at the professor's, you know, house who was hosting him and uh, who was very annoyed that Alan was talking with uh, the young teenagers instead of their hosts. But if anyone knows anything about Alan, that's, that's right in character. <laughs> and, um, and then we, he gave me his number, and we just stayed in touch after that. And... Um, I think once my brother, Matt, and I went um, into New York and went and visited him in his apartment in the East Village, you know, in crumbly, run-down East Village back then, you know. And um, I guess a few years later, I was in college um, at Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, and um, I set up a reading for him. And he was there for a few days. It went great. It was just an awesome reading. His readings were like rock concerts, you know. They were really dynamic and exciting. He sang, he chanted, he read amazingly moving poems. He read incredibly dirty poems that would make people leave the room with, you know, with their faces flushed. <laughs> All while dressed like a banker. That was his subversive way, you know. Well, that was it. After the reading, it went so well. Someone was leaving his office, and I was... And uh, he needed someone for that summer. 
And so the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to New York and worked in the office and um, booked the, uh, helped book and schedule, negotiate fees for the travel accommodations for a giant tour of Eastern Europe that he was doing. So we'd get sponsorship from companies there to do it or, you know, uh, cultural attache offices, you know, would pay for him to go there and stuff like that. He had that circuit, you know, locked down, you know. And so that's what I did. I did a lot of that, a lot of the photo archiving stuff that summer, typing up a lot of the poems, which was kind of a neat experience. You know, you'd type it up, give it to him, and then he'd mark it up, and you'd read, you know, put those in and give it back to him, and he'd, you know, go through five, 15, 20 drafts, you know. These were new poems? Yeah, new poems, new poems. They're all out now, but yeah. It's fun to see them, you know, after that, and knowing what they were originally like. And the fact that Alan is always the... You know, first thought, best thought was what he always said. And spontaneous writing, the truth is he, re- he revised and edited like crazy. Alan was unusual. He had a full-time staff. You know, he had a little cottage business, you know, the Ginsburg, Ginsburg Cottage Industry. An office of three, sometimes five full-time people, depending on the number of projects that were going on. Organizing his life, uh, his main income was poetry reading, was tours. He'd get a good amount, you know, for reading in a university or something. And that was the main cash flow. Um, poetry royalties, even if you're Allen Ginsberg, aren't, you know, enough really to live on. And um, and so it was an office that um, did a lot of things, managed his schedule, uh, managed his finances, managed uh, his giant photo archive. You know, all the pictures you see of William Burroughs or Kerouac or Gregory Corso or Herbert Hunky are all taken by Allen mostly, especially the ones in the 40s and the 50s. So when you see an old picture, it's usually, you know, so there are a gazillion negatives to go through and, and catalog and you know, make it in a way that it, you know, could bring some money in to license this stuff properly, you know. And um, he gave all his money away, you know. He always said it's better to give than pay taxes, you know. So the office was, <laughs> he had a thing called Committee on Poetry, which, um, COP, which disseminated money to, you know, a lot of poets who, you know, needed it. You know? Gosh, my first day on the job, I probably can't remember. I think I remember the first week on the job being in the office and just sending a lot of faxes <laughs> to, uh, remember faxes? You know, to uh, the places that were doing the tours, you know, negotiating the fees back and forth. And some places couldn't pay enough and you'd do something creative. Like when he read in Ireland, they couldn't pay him enough. But to make up the difference, they had a custom-made McGee tweed suit tailored for him. And um, he ended up being cremated in that suit. And he loved that suit. It was like his first new suit. He bought everything secondhand. You know, he bought everything from Goodwill stores, even after he had money. It was just habits of a lifetime, you know? A lot of times, if some of his friends, you never knew who'd come by, whether it be uh, Herbert Hunky, a really amazing Beat Generation writer, Gregory Corso, a great poet, Lou Reed, some, you know, come by a couple times. Um, Do you have any Corso stories? Oh, yeah. I got really um, kind of addicted to hanging out with Gregory. I don't. I probably wouldn't now, now that I'm in my 40s, I don't know if I could take it, because he was a very, he was, he could be a really sweet guy, but he was also, you know, he was alcoholic, very alcoholic, he was a a heroin addict for 40, 40, 50 years, you know, and uh, if you didn't know he was this great writer, you you know, people would see him probably think he was, lived on the street, you know, because the hygiene, the missing teeth, you know, that kind of. Thing. The smashed-in nose where he'd been punched in the face a gazillion times, mouthing off to the wrong person. He was a provocateur. You know, you weren't a real poet in New York until you'd been heckled by Gregory at one of your readings. You know, yell at you from the stage, you know, you're killing poetry, you know. Uh, 
I don't know. You know, you wonder why people put up with him. But the thing was, he was like kind of magical in a lot of ways. He would he would say things that just had this, you know, weird logic where you'd be like, what? And then you think about it for a second. You're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. You know, like a fish is animalized water. was one. <laughs> You know, you can't step in the same river once, you know, or, you know, I know everything because there ain't that much to know. That was one of my favorite ones. But, you know, a typical day, I remember one time just walking around the village with him, you know, drinking, you know, drinking tequila and stuff. And we tried to go to four or five bars and every bartender was like, you know, you know, 86 all around the neighborhood there. And, you know, just walking around and um, we walked to a movie theater and. The Jurassic Park was on, and Greg was like, I don't want to see that dinosaur movie, you know. And I'm like, I already started. He's like, I got a plan, I got a plan. I'm like, what? So he just walks in the theater, we walk into the movie theater and open the door, and the movie's on, and closes the door behind, you know, behind me. It's all dark, and he's like, okay, hide. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, and then, of course, the theater guy saw us go in there, but we start walking from the back. Maybe just sneak in, sit down there, but then the guy comes in and grabs us, you know. And Gregory's like, the guy said we could go. The guy said we could come see it. And then the theater guy was like, says to me, he goes, you know, sober your grandfather up. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but besides the crazy stories about Greg, he was, he was I don't want to, you know, uh, denigrate his character. <laughs> yeah. He was a wonderful guy. And he, when he talked, it was often sounded like his poems. Like, it didn't really stop on the page with him, you know. It was, uh, there wasn't any division between him and the poem. It was kind of like he was the poem, you know. Uh, it was quite something to see when he was in a, in a good mood. But I think he suffered from a lot of anxiety and panic attacks, and maybe that's why all the self-medication. And he could be hostile in public, you know what I mean? One night he got angry at me and threw me out of his apartment and told me I was a bore and all this stuff. And then he'd call you the next day and tearfully apologize, you know. And you wonder, why would you put up with this crap from people, you know? But, um, you know, what he gave was worse than... <laughs> kind of what he you know, would did take you, it a certain way. Did you take it seriously when he threw you out of there? Or did I didn't it? enjoy being thrown. He was one of my favorite writers, you know. What's a uh, day-to-day life, just an average day if you're Allen Ginsberg? Oh, yeah. Well, um, A, you can find out very easily in a lot of his poems. He, he wrote a lot of poems in the 80s and 90s, kind of just going through his daily routine. You know, there's one called In My Kitchen in New York, about his Tai Chi routine. There's one that just describes his whole, in detail, his whole morning activity. You know, he would stay up very late, so he'd uh, sleep um, really late. He wrote a lot of poems throughout the night. He would often wake up and jot things down. He always had the book by his bed, you know. And he'd invite you to read it. It was journal, but he'd just leave it out. If you want to read it, go ahead, you know. He was, he was open that way, you know, the, a man with no secrets. So he'd probably wake up, you know, 10 or 11, I think, um, and, you know, scrawl for a while there in bed and then shuffle over to the kitchen and uh, have his breakfast, which was miso soup and uh, steel-cut oatmeal, you know, homemade there. He was, uh, he'd had congestive heart failure, and he was trying to do a macrobiotic diet, you know, and it, it helped him get off insulin for diabetes, too, the diet, but he cheated on it all the time. He really liked blintzes, pierogies, you know, Eastern European food more than, more than anything. <laughs> split pea soup and uh, borscht and all that stuff. So, you know, I'd have that breakfast. He'd, you know, go through his schedule for the day, maybe make a few calls, and then, you know, by two or three, he'd go over to the office. Um, uh, and uh, 
you know, start work. And that would be a number of things, going over proofs for a book or, uh, you know, writing an intro to someone or keeping up on his correspondence or uh, his photographs. The photography business became about selling, you know, prints and um, prints, you know, really nice prints. He used this guy, a great printer named Brian Graham, who also printed Robert Frank's photos. And um, he'd hand caption, you know, he'd write a long, detailed, poetic caption under the, you know, and that's what you'd sell you know reproduce i have a couple of them what would, what would those go for right now i don't know anyway uh, at the time oh i don't know if maybe a few thousand you know so you know hand caption a bunch of photos and he would do those he would take that work home too but mostly it was a lot of correspondence because he would get just tons of mail and he would eventually get through all of it um interestingly the, the ones he liked to save the most of them were the ones from mentally disturbed people you know, he had a special file for them. There'd be files for literary correspondence. There was one just from fans called Ordinary Mail. And I wish I could remember the name of... He had great names for files, though, in the office. You know, like his personal stuff, like his will and, you know, financial papers where it's in a folder labeled uh, Death and Asshole. <laughs> it was the name of the... You know, and there was FYPC, which was Faded Yellow Press Clippings, you know. And he would just cut the things out of the paper that his main concerns in life, which was usually, uh, you know, censorship, the war on drugs, gay rights, you know, and just, you know, organize that stuff. That's the thing. That office was like an archive for all, pretty much all of the counterculture in a way. You know, plus his Rolodex, he had everyone's name in there that you could possibly think of who had anything to do with, you know, counterculture, bohemia, hippie, punk, and all of that strain of American culture, because he was such a, you know, conduit for all of it. And then he'd probably work at the office till eight or nine at night, you know, and then go home and, you know, get dinner often at uh, the Mi, this Chinese place across from his place where he went all the time. And then, you know, go home and uh, kind of keep going at it and then read the Times cover to cover every day looking for those faded yellow press clippings, you know. And he can't stop. He could not stop working, you know, even when he needed to, even when he was ill and sick and needed to rest, you know. Is that poem his? I'm a prisoner of Allen Ginsberg, and I think it was true. He was such a such a driven workaholic, you know, like all like all great artists, right? Like the real deal works harder than the average bear. The apartment that I became familiar with, that I stayed at for several months, and um, it's 437 East 12th Street, between First and A in East Village. A neat building that uh, Richard Hell also lives there. Um, some great local poets like John Godfrey, Larry Fagan, um, Lou Reed's 80s, 90s girlfriend Sylvia lived there. Um, also um, uh, Simon Pettit, great poet, and uh, who was at the time married to, to Rose, uh, Rose Filiou, his wife, um, who is uh, Harley Flanagan from the Cro-Mags mother. You know, it was a neat and a, a great, wonderful person too. Um, when things were too weird in Alan's apartment, I'd always go down and talk to them. But it was a crappy, it still is. I was just there not too long ago because I still have friends in that building. It was kind of known as the Poets Building, you know. And uh, a lot of the St. Mark's Poetry Project people would pass through there. It was a terrible landlord. I think he still runs it. The place was, you know, just falling apart around him. The East Village landlords, notorious, don't do a damn thing to their apartment unless they have to, you know, unless it's completely, literally, you know, actually chunks of the ceiling falling. They won't, they won't fix anything, you know. But he had rent control, a super, super cheap rent. I mean, it was something like $320 a month. I think it was definitely less than 400 a month, you know, which... And it was two apartments with the, a kind of a doorway that they'd put in between them. 
And he actually had a third apartment on that floor where Peter Olofsky, his, his you know, boyfriend, lived for a long time. That's a whole other story. But, you know, it was all secondhand furniture. Uh, there was an incredible library in there. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever really seen someone who was a real book person's library, you know. And I was just like, wow, you know. Um, a lot of great illuminated William Blake volumes, you know, with really beautiful reproductions of Blake's drawings. You know, you can sit there for hours, you know. He had a great collection of blues. He loved blues music. The first song he remembers hearing in his life was C.C. Ryder, you know, Ma Rainey's version. And that song was played while he was dying as well, you know, uh, in 1997. Um, a lot of Dylan records. He had a fair amount of um, yeah, Public Enemy, LL Cool J. You know, he was checking out rap music at some point in the 80s. I remember he had Walk Like a Panther, the LL Cool J record. I think that's him. It, that was funny to me. And, of course, a ton of Dylan records. Um, and it was neat because you could look through his books and, you know, you'd pick up a Burroughs book and it would be signed, you know, by Burroughs. I remember reading a a biography of Burroughs called Literary Outlaw by Ted Morgan when I was there. It's a good book, but I read Alan's copy, so we had all of his notes in the margin. No, it did not happen like this, sir. <laughs> Falsehood, not exactly. He was very concerned with accuracy, you know, all the time. So that's that, that was a fun way to read the book, you know. Uh, and there were also a lot of, um, you know, Tibetan tankas on the wall because in his altar there in the bedroom because he was a, you know, practicing Buddhist. Um, I lived in a little tiny, tiny back room that had a piano in it. I mean, it was just a few feet wide by the time. It was a little narrow bed. It had been Harry Smith's room. You know Harry Smith from Anthology of American Folk Music, the folkway set that influenced so many people. An incredible guy. He'd lived in that room before. He was, he was dead at that point, but it was kind of like thought of as Harry's room. And then there was an office and the kitchen, which is where most, most of the socializing occurred. You know, he would like to cook. He made a great borscht, actually, and um, a decent miso soup. <laughs> you know, and people would come over and just hang out at the kitchen table. There was always people coming from all over the world, you know, European poets and, you know, kind of a lot of Buddhist people Excuse me, as well would come through. It was an interesting place to be, for sure, you know. Around the corner from Manitoba's, um, uh, Lead Belly mm -hmm. lived over there. Mm -hmm. Did he ever have any stories about, uh, about Lead Belly? Oh, he was very familiar with his music. And actually, at the time there, uh, that Nirvana Unplugged album had come out. Um, and, you know, the last song on that, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And that's, you know, In the Pines. In the Pines. And that was Lead Belly, right? Because yeah. he was talking about that song. Because we kept listening to that. He, he loved the Nirvana Unplugged. And he thought, uh, he was very familiar with the song, which he, which he was telling me was saying the original words, it's not my girl, my girl, it's black girl, black girl, right? Don't lie to me. And... Um, and he thought Cobain sang it so sweetly until he's screaming at the end. He's like, why does he have to do that? Which for most people is like the most intense part of the song. You know? I'm going to assume you met Dylan. I did not meet Dylan. Everyone else in the office, Peter Hale, my good friend Peter, um, Bob Rosenthal, my good friend Bob. Bob was Alan's main secretary for 30 years. Peter still runs the estate now. They all got to meet him. I did not. And you know what? When I, I believe Alan, uh, Dylan stopped by Alan's apartment for the first time in 25 years, about three or four days after I moved out. Which just kills me. I mean, I'm like not dying to meet Bob Dylan, but it would have been a cool way because, you know, because he'd be with a friend and he'd be yeah. what's for him probably as normal as he gets. Or, and then you just sit and listen, of course, and don't say a damn word. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the strategy there. That would have been one of the few chances to have a true interaction with, exactly. with Dylan. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. But there is a great account of Dylan coming to Ginsburg's the same apartment in 1985 that all your listeners should look up called The Night Dylan Came Around. It's by Raymond Foy, um, who's a great writer and art curator in New York. And um, it's in a couple, it's in one of the Dylan books. I can't remember which one, you know, collected who is this guy. And it's a really kind of illuminating thing and shows their relationship, which was by all accounts a little unbalanced because Alan was the older guy. Dylan's a younger guy. Dylan's the disciple, so to speak, but those roles got switched over time as Dylan's impact became so gigantic. I mean, as far as Ginsburg was concerned, Dylan was the man, you know, the best poet of, you know, not best, he would never say best, but, you know, one of the major, major, the major guys. And I think he felt like, you know, proud in a way that Dylan was so influenced by <laughs> by him, you know? <laughs> and uh, just had so much admiration for him, you know, as artist, you know, kind of a pure artist, you know. I have to believe if you're Allen Ginsberg, your stalkers must be some of the craziest stalkers ever. Yeah. A lot of times people would come up to him and want to, you know, give him a, a manuscript to read. Would you read this? You know, and Alan would be like, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm very busy. You know, I have my own books to write. I have, you know, and then they'd get mad at him. Fuck you then. I remember seeing a guy do that, but fuck you then, Alan Ginn. You know, the guy's trying to hand him a 300-page manuscript. It's like, come on, right? I mean, it's very pushy, right? <laughs> and um, he would. there were definitely some letters from people he, he'd really gotten in their heads somehow uh, who were angry, usually angry at him for some reason, calling him a big phony, you know, or you're a hypocrite, you know, you're a... You're, you know, counterculture guy, and you had the audacity to make money in the last 10 years of your life, you know, I mean, that kind of thing, you know, sellout. Or, um, there was a writer named Andrea Dworkin, um, who's a famous, in some circles, writer, um, a feminist writer, who really had it in for Alan for some reason. She's kind of a, a radical feminist writer. She's famous uh, for a book called Intercourse, you know, which poses that all sex is rape and blah, blah. The right wing always points to her as like, um, they use her as a scapegoat because she was very far, you know, as a rep. Anyway, she was troubled. Um, she was a really good writer. And at one point, Alan kind of mentored her, her in life. And, but at one point, she turned on him and, and um, you know, wrote a really nasty essay saying that, uh, that he was, a, you know, a pedophile and a rapist and all this very untrue stuff. And um, it, was, it was bizarre. Um, another person who would call and, and harass him a lot was... Um, I'll get in trouble for this, but it was uh, Jan Kerouac, uh, Jack, his friend Jack Kerouac's daughter, who was having her own troubles in life and um, was on a campaign to say that the, uh, his will had been, signature on his will had been forged and that his estate was going to the wrong people, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't know what the real story is or why, but she really wanted Alan to take side, a side in the matter, and he didn't want to because you know, not my business, you know? She'd call and leave, you know, left a few really pretty weird messages on the office answering machine, you know, yelling at him and stuff like that. Did he get tired of talking about Kerouac? No, he loved talking about Kerouac. He loved talking about Kerouac Burroughs, of course, so he loved Gary Snyder, uh, Philip Whalen. He loved pimping his friends. That was, he was a, he was a great publicist. He willed the beat generation into being. It wasn't. It probably it wouldn't have happened, I don't think, as it did without him as the main, you know, publicist for it. I mean, Burroughs didn't want fame. Kerouac was shy, you know. Um, 
it wouldn't have happened without Alan. He he liked the tension and you know being famous and notorious. He he very much enjoyed it. He wasn't a, Kerouac did not enjoy being famous by any means. I think Alan in a lot of ways did. And he but the thing is he did that before anyone knew who they were. He was convinced that his friends were the biggest geniuses in the in the world <laughs> at that time. You know. At the same time, I remember asking him about Kerouac if he missed him. I said, do, do you miss Kerouac? He said, no. He said, I don't miss him. He was dead before he died, as far as he was concerned. Kerouac got so uh, so lost in his alcoholism the last 10 years of his life, and a very unhappy guy, you know. He would call up Alan and do, go on anti-Semitic tirades, you know, and it's just a really ugly, really ugly last 10 years for him. It's kind of tragic, really. If you've seen pictures of him, how his appearance changed and, you know... Uh, this footage of him on the William F. Buckley show firing line, you know, maybe years, even maybe six months before his death, you know, and he's only 47, and he, just, you know, he looks in his early 60s, he's bloated and fat and sweaty and wasted on the show, and he, he poo-poos Ginsburg from the stage at one point, who was in the audience, you know. It was very strange, you know. So he said he didn't miss him, because, <laughs> you know, he was kind of a dead-while-alive-already kind of situation, you know. Alan died of uh, liver cancer, uh, which he got from hepatitis C. He had hepatitis C, probably contracted it in the, I think in the 50s. He'd had a blood transfusion in South America. He had experimented with IV drugs, too, in the 50s as well. So, you know, who knows? Hepatitis C is chronic. You can't cure it. It takes about 40 years to kill you. It destroys your liver. You get cirrhosis or or you get, um, you know, liver cancer or, or bile duct cancer in some case, you know. Uh, Alan always joked, his father would tell a joke, uh, if, is, is life worth living? Depends on the liver. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, he'd been in bad health for a few years and kind of misdiagnosed in a lot of ways, you know, with the macrobiotic diet, the congestive heart failure and such. But eventually he got a um, diagnosis of liver cancer and they, they told him he had maybe two months to live. And he, uh, he called everyone he knew. I was um, visiting some family in Florida at the time. And um, he, he kind of went through his Rolodex and called everyone and told everyone, I have liver cancer, I'm very calm, you know, two months to live. I, th- I think it's a lot less. And it turned out to be about four days uh, till his death. Yeah, I think maybe four days, um, which was April 5th, 97, I believe. Anyway, so I was, uh, I think he died while I was flying back. And I was like, oh, no, well, I'll see you when you get back. Okay. And... Um, so I got home, and um, I'm walking up to my apartment. My roommate comes down the stairs, and, um, and, he, and he gives me a hug. I'm like, well, that's weird. What? He's, come on. You know, he had a serious look on his face. He's like, yeah, he's got a message. Alan, Alan died, you know, not too long ago. And um, Bob wanted to know if he wanted you to come over to the office, you know, come over, not to the office, to his apartment, which was actually a different apartment, um, one he'd bought a year before, um, a nice loft that he'd gotten. Um, his first nice apartment, and he only didn't even get to live into it, you know, in it for a year. It's such a bummer. And um, so Bob was like, you know, if you want to come over, come over. So I went over there, and um, he was there in a, in a, you know, hospice care in the apartment. So he was there in the hospital bed. He's very clearly dead. Um, he looked good, actually. And um, there were a bunch of Tibetan monks there chanting, because um, in the, you know, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you you don't touch or move the body till after. Um, the soul or spirit or whatever wouldn't be a soul because in Buddhism there is no soul. Something leaves. <laughs> the consciousness, that's it. Of course, the consciousness leaves. 
So they stand there and chant until I don't know how they know. <laughs> Look dead to me, but they're, they're the experts, you know. <laughs> so they're chanting. They chanted for about eight hours there. Um, and there were 20 or 30, in typical island, there were 20 or 30 people hanging around, just kind of sitting with them and, you know, saying, I recall Patty Smith was there. Um, Corso had been by, um, Philip Glass, you know, all of his, all of his, all of his good friends. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very sad. <laughs> um, it was interesting. I mean, with that kind of chanting, I'm not a, much of a believer myself, but there is a power <laughs> in that kind of chanting that, that happens, you know. There's some pretty interesting footage of that um, online shot by a guy named Jonas Mikis, a really famous, uh, famous in some circles, East Village, long-time kind of documentary filmmaker guy, runs the Anthology Film Archives. It's called Scenes from Alan's Last Days on Earth is a Spirit or something. If anyone listening wants to YouTube that, it's a pretty good representation of what the scene was like. Uh, they show him even wheeling him out and, you know, after all the chanting and everything. Was he cremated? Yeah, yeah. And the service was at Shambhala Center. Um, yeah, it was, you know, a, Buddhist, a traditional Buddhist funeral, a really plain pine box and everyone sitting on cushions. And um, I remember Gregory read a poem he'd written and his stepmother, his 90, late 90s stepmother, who was there, you know, um, Edith, who was really sweet, you know, said a few words. And Bob Rosenthal, his longtime loyal secretary, and they burn an effigy, you know, they burn a picture of him, light it on fire and stuff. And uh, Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson were there. I remember seeing them leave uh, and all these paparazzi right in front of them, just kind of backing up while he kept walking. You know, I was like, that must suck. God, <laughs> I remember thinking. But uh, he was there. He loved, he really, really appreciated Alan a lot. And, you know, not a man who threw out compliments <laughs> all that often. <laughs> a neat guy, I think. I, I'm, I'm sad he's gone. I hate thinking of New York without Lou Reed in it. It just doesn't compute in my mind. <clears throat> you know, I have a couple of nice prints with the hand captioned ones and, you know, a bunch of signed books. Pretty much. A lot of great pictures, you know, that I, that I took of him, you know, with his friends and stuff, yeah. The personal memories, are they all positive? Yeah, I'd say they're mostly positive, yeah. I mean, he could have a temper and, you know, snap at people. I saw that happen, but he had a lot of pressure on him, you know. Everyone wanted his attention and wanted his time, you know, and he'd get frustrated, I think, with that. But, yeah, I mean, God, I mean, it had a huge effect on my life. I wouldn't have moved to New York. It, without, you know, that chance to work in his office or anything, I, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I could even make it happen, you know, moving from Indiana to New York. And then from that, I got to segue into book publishing, and I've been doing that for, you know, 20-some years now, you know. And it was, it helped me get a job because it kind of made me, you know, send in my resume, his, Alan's name on it, it kind of made me stand out a little bit, I think, from the average applicant. And it, it helped a lot, you know. It opened a, a ton of doors, you know. I mean, forever forever grateful for that you know and that's that's and that's his one he did that for thousands of people you know like it's funny to be here talking about Alan I only knew him for seven years or something you know there are people who knew him much much longer and much more intimately and you know much you know spent a ton more time with him than I did I was kind of an office employee there and it was a friendly relationship it wasn't like we were best friends or anything you know but it was it you know it worked I mean I think I did good work and I think you know he, he respected that and it just it, you know made things you know kind of pleasant and it was 
just it was just a really great job. I don't know that I'll ever have a job that interesting again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's just no way. I mean, I didn't know how rare that kind of thing was at the time. I was only 22. I don't. I thought maybe I know all poets have something like this going. Of course, no, I, obviously not. You know. <laughs> In that kind of little literary office, you know, a, a kind of a clearinghouse for the whole counterculture, a well of resource for anyone, you know, trying to look into that world. It was an extremely unique place in business, and it's still there with Peter Hale, you know, running it, who worked, who was uh, Bob's main assistant, Bob Rosenthal's main assistant there. I appreciate you meeting up with me wherever the hell we are here. <laughs> And, uh, sharing stories. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, Otis. It's been a long time. It's great to see you again, man. It's been a little while. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Ben for meeting up with me at that hotel in Indianapolis. You can find out everything you need to know about Ben at decapopress.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.